Today we're going to be covering Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, and this will be the last time we're in the book of Philippians in 2023. Miles was like, what? Yes, in 2023, specifically. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Before we get started, let's just pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you so much for the clarity that you have provided for us in a world that not only does not know you, but does not want to know you. We know that for those of us who are in Christ, um, we have been plucked out of this world and been explained to by the power of your spirit working in our hearts through your word uh, what life is all about and so father uh, we just pray that your word would work in us uh, that those of us who don't know you would be regenerated to new life in you and for those of us who do know you that we might uh, see your glory more and that we might be more like your son we have confidence in your word and your spirit and so we thank you and we pray this in your name amen If you can believe it, as we've covered Philippians in the fall so far, we've covered 43 verses in the book of Philippians. And so far in this letter, the word gospel, or a reference to gospel ministry, has shown up 17 times. 17 times. And I know it's 17 because I have a list in front of me, actually. But even more than that, Christ has been named either directly or a reference to him like the pronoun him or lord that's appeared 30 times 30 times in 43 verses which means in the 43 verses we've covered so far almost every single verse has either mentioned christ mentioned the gospel or both which shows something very very obvious which is that the gospel matters christ's gospel Matters. It is so important for us to be constantly reminded about the gospel. Just because you know the message of the gospel doesn't mean you don't need to be reminded of it. And that isn't just so that you share the gospel or that you know more details or specifications about the gospel. It's not just for evangelism, though obviously that's important. You also need to be reminded of the gospel because Christians need to keep growing and they grow from being reminded about the gospel it's when you're reminded of the gospel that you love it and you live in it that's what paul said for us in philippians chapter 1 verse 27 let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ the gospel is not just a message the gospel is a reminder that you are in an active ongoing 
unbreakable, sanctifying relationship with God that comes through Jesus and it comes by the Spirit's power. And as you remember the gospel and you grow in it, you glorify God in the world. The way Paul said this last week was in verse 12, work out your salvation. Recognize constantly, repeatedly, how you are saved and who saved you. And then let the effects of that work its way out in your life. And today what Paul does in verses 14 and 18 is he gives us a threat to that. Paul gives us a threat to gospel growth and gospel ministry. The famous pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, he explained the transition to verse 14 this way. He said, Paul, as a wise teacher, realizes that it's not enough just to tell us what we have to do. He also has to tell us what to avoid and what to beware of. Paul writes to warn them and to forearm and safeguard them against some of these subtle enemies of the soul. He's going to mention a sin and he's going to call it a subtle enemy of the soul, which means it might not be a sin you think of very often. And so the question is, what sin is that going to be? You know, Paul in Philippians actually hasn't mentioned too many sins thus far. He's mentioned a couple. He's mentioned envy and rivalry in chapter 1, verse 15. These people who are supposedly sharing the gospel, but they don't like Paul. And then he's also talked a number of times about selfishness, which is obviously important in chapter 1, verse 17, and in chapter 2, verse 3. This is not only a threat from gospel antagonists, it's also a threat for Christians to being unified. Even though both of those are important, and they will show up later in the book of Philippians, Paul doesn't mention either of those sins. He mentions a different sin, and I personally think, even as studying this book, it's a very surprising sin. The threat, the sin, which is a threat to gospel growth and gospel ministry, is complaining. It's complaining. In Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, which is his third or fourth command that he's given us in Philippians. And it sets the stage for everything that comes. Paul warns us about complaining. Now, we basically all know what complaining is, so I don't need to pretend to describe it to you. And we know what complaining is because complaining is something that we all live in all the time, whether it's us or other people. This is something very constant in our lives. But in order to understand the importance of this command, Paul, even in a couple of words, actually stresses how serious this warning is. And we know that for a couple of details. Firstly, we know it because Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without complaining, which is a broad statement. He's saying complaining is never acceptable no matter what circumstance you're in. Of course, Paul is not saying that if you admit that something's hard or sad or difficult in your life, like suffering, that's not necessarily complaining. It's, it's different. But what he is saying is that you can't view all of life in this negative way in which you feel comfortable or okay with life by pointing out its negativity, blaming everything else and leaving yourself totally innocent. It is never acceptable to complain. That means this is a serious command. And the second detail we have is this. 
Paul describes complaining with two words because he wants to be specific about this. He uses the word grumbling and disputing. The first word, grumbling, is complaining inside. It's complaining in the heart. It's when you repeat something that's frustrating you and you repeat it over and over and over in your head. You meditate on it and you don't want to get over it. You want to just keep it there. And then the second word, disputing, is the opposite. It's when complaining comes out of you. It's when your inside frustration is unleashed. It's when you start to argue or antagonize someone or provoke or frustrate other people because you don't care if your personal frustrations upset other people. Disputing can literally be translated as evil or selfish thoughts coming out into the open. That's what that word means. And so we could summarize putting both of those words together that Paul's command is this. Stop complaining both inside and outside. Any way you could appropriately define complaining, never do it. And so the question is, why is that such a serious problem? Well, I I think you could start at least here. Complaining is a sin we normalize. Complaining is a sin we normalize. So it's not just that complaining is something we experience. It's something that we don't usually think is as bad or as sinful as it is. That's why in our regular conversations, we complain about homework. We hear people complain about traffic. We complain about our friends and family members. We complain about our comfort or our privacy being interrupted. We can complain about basically everything. We complain when we think something goes wrong and we think that a lot of things go wrong and that it's both not usually our fault and what's going wrong in life is abnormal. And so our complaining is a way of expressing that. This week, I literally heard a YouTuber explain that his job was to be a professional complainer, which is like a weird thing to say if you actually think about it. But it's even weirder if you think that a lot of YouTube, which I like, I watch a lot of YouTube videos as well, a lot of things in which people are using cultural conversation to talk about important things is actually complaining whether it's YouTube or podcasts or whatever. I listened to an old song from the 70s in which a guy was describing um, young men and how much they normalize complaining about things because they think that they're really wise, uh, but they're actually not. And then I heard a song that came out this year by Taylor Swift about, what was it called? Uh, What was the name of the song that I was listening to? Uh, You Need to Just Stop, right? You guys know that song. You need to calm down. That's what it is. Thank you. Yeah, you need to calm down. So whether it's a song that just came out this year or last year, or a song from the 70s, most people can spot the difference between telling something that's true and it being upsetting or complaining about something. Because complaining is normal. And here's the problem that Paul is pointing out. And he's pointing it out thousands of years ago. If complaining is a sin, we can't normalize it because sin shouldn't be normal. Because if you complain, then what you're actually doing is you are normalizing ungratefulness instead of gratefulness. You're normalizing being irritable instead of being happy. You're normalizing being jealous over being content, being impatient 
more than patient and being selfish over selfless. That's truly what complaining actually is. And that's a key problem for Paul. And he's saying that should be a problem for Christians, especially when you think about gospel ministry. Because just think about it. Who in their right mind is going to see the goodness of our God if his people are constantly complaining? To say it bluntly, people who act like babies or negative Nancys are not very good representatives of a very good God because we give the wrong testimony of our God if people think our God still leaves us with things to complain about because he doesn't. And that really matters in the context of this world because if you look at verse 15, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's a world that loves sin more than righteousness, which is what it means for them to be crooked. It's a world that's confused between what's wrong and right, and they don't mind. That's twisted. And that world needs the gospel because it offers something that the world can't get. The gospel offers this world real freedom, real love, real satisfaction. Or to say it this way, the gospel offers relief from feeling like we need to complain. In Christ, we have no things to complain about. Truly, we have no things to complain about. It's actually the opposite. We only have reasons to rejoice. And Paul is pointing out the obvious fact that the world needs to see that. And so here, Paul actually gives us a solution to complaining. And it's one word, remember. The solution to complaining is to remember, to remember who you are and who God has called you to be in the gospel. And remembering God kills complaining. We can't forget how good it is to be called by Christ. And if you do recall that to mind, you will find how encouraging it is. Not just to stop complaining, but to start proclaiming. And that's really Paul's point. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, Paul's going to give us three reminders so that we stop complaining and start representing God to the world. Three reminders of who we are and who God's called us to be so that we stop our complaining and we represent God to the world. Three reminders. And here's the first reminder, and it's the first part of verse 15. The first thing you need to remember is that we are children of God. Christians are children of God. Paul says in verse 15 that if you stop complaining, you will be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish. So Paul isn't saying there that if you have ever complained, that disqualifies you from being a child of God. He would readily admit if you are a child of God, you will still struggle with complaining. That's why he's telling this to Christians because salvation is by Christ not by our works. But what he's pointing out is that children of God should remember their adoption. Their adoption. Adoption is one of the greatest doctrines of the Bible. Adoption is the doctrine that God is not just our master, but God is our father. John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Galatians 6, 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. J.I. Packer, a famous pastor, once said that adoption is the most beautiful doctrine in the Bible. And I think that's totally appropriate because adoption means God's unconditional love. Adoption means freedom from sin because God loves you. Adoption means future hope that can't be lost or given up. Many of you guys have experienced this because, by God's grace, many of you are adopted. And there's a lot of people who are adopted in this church. And you know by experience, that's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing to be included into a family. It's something to be thankful for. And therefore, if that is a good thing, should we not be reminded even more that spiritual adoption from the God of the universe is something absolutely amazing? And here, Paul is actually mentioning a particular blessing that comes from adoption. Paul says that God's children are blameless, innocent, and without blemish. God's children are clean and sinless. And of course, by experience, that doesn't feel like the case because Christians still struggle with sin. He's obviously pointing out a sin we need to stop committing. So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says God's children become this way? God's children are sanctified in this way. Well, this is what he's trying to explain. He wants to explain how you should think and behave as God's children. And the assurance you have is because you will be and become like God your father. You could think of it this way. We become like our parents. We become like our parents. I had an illustration of this a couple weeks ago when me and Ashley were sitting with some friends and we were talking about music and my friends asked me what kind of music I like. And before I could answer, Ashley jumped in and she said, Clifton likes men who sing in falsetto. So if, if someone sings, ha, ah, that's nice, but it goes, someone goes, ha, ah, I really like that. And I laughed really hard because it's, weirdly that's true. You could take like my top 10 favorite artists, like eight of them are men who go, ha, ah, Everything, like so many things. It was weirdly accurate. And over the next couple of days, I was thinking, that's such a weird interest that I have. I wonder like where that came from. And I started thinking about it for a weirdly long amount of time. And I think I realized what it is. And that's because when I grew up as a child from a very, very young age, one of the things my dad used to do is walk around the house and he would only sing in falsetto only ever in falsetto and not only was it just because of his interest which came from somewhere maybe his dad my dad's apparently a lot like his dad but it was a way that my dad just kept our household really happy and really funny he did it both because he likes to and he also did it because it made us laugh and if you ask ashley when i walk around the house and clean or i'm getting something or collecting like five drinks that i like to have all at the same time I kid you not, I sing in falsetto. Only ever falsetto. When I pick up a guitar, Ashley's nodding her head, I only sing songs usually in falsetto. Because I became like my dad. And all of you have examples of that. 
All of you, because of living with your parents, you become like them, whether you notice it or not. And Paul is saying the same thing. If you are adopted by God, you will become like him. And if you remember your adoption, you will remember that you become like God, your father, not because he's pressuring you, not because he's intimidating you, but because he loves you. And he's pouring out his graciousness as you see him in the word and as you depend on him in your weakness and you rely on his strength, you will become like your father. Now ask yourself the question, is that something worth complaining about? When you remember your adoption and you become like God your father, is that something to complain about or something to be thankful for? Because if you don't remember that, if you rather forget about that, you don't display God the way you should. And unfortunately, a really good example of doing this badly is basically Israel in the entire Old Testament. And their bad example started two days, three days, after they were saved from 400 years of slavery. That's actually the illusion that Paul is pointing out here. In Exodus chapter 15, after Israel is saved from the Egyptians, they go out and they sing an amazing song in Exodus 15 about how excited and joyful they are. And it's an amazing moment. It's like the climactic moment in all of scripture so far. And then it says a couple verses later, three days later, that Israel grumbled. And it's the same word here. They got hungry and immediately they thought God didn't care about them. And in the very next chapter, that's the most repeated word. Israel grumbles seven more times. That's their testimony. That's their representation. Forgetting days later what God did for them. And they fail in their mission to represent God. And actually they fail so badly that they become like the world. And Moses mentions that in his farewell speech to them in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 5 and 6. Sounds familiar. Listen. They have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and who established you? Paul's directly quoting from Deuteronomy 32. Because he's saying, complaining Christians are people who forget their adoption. When we forget God's grace, we complain instead of proclaim. But if you remember, not only do you get all of the joy of knowing you are loved unconditionally by God despite your sin, but remembering your adoption also sanctifies you from sin. It's the key assurance you have to know that you're not like this crooked and twisted generation anymore. And God is making you slowly more and more like him. And the world needs to see that. And the world needs to see that because Satan is their father. Satan is their father. Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John 8. He says, you are doing the works your father did. In verse 44, he clarifies, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Every single one of us was born into this world in Satan's 
family. The devil was our father. And when we got adopted by God, not only were we adopted out of that family and freed from that, but we were also freed into the goodness, graciousness, and godliness of God. And God has promised to make you like him. The world needs to see that. He needs to see our gratefulness and thankfulness for our adoption. And consequently, they need to see the transformation that results from our adoption. Which means they need to see that we truly believe because we are adopted by God, we have nothing to complain about. But only things to rejoice in. That's reminder number one. We are children of God. And the next reminder comes right after in the latter part of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. And the second reminder is we are lights in the world. We are lights in the world. Paul continues in verses 15 and 16 saying that we are among this crooked and twisted generation and we shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. In a nutshell, God made us different from the world and that should be obvious. We should shine. Jesus gives the same command in Matthew 5, 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They see God's goodness to you, his transformation of you, and naturally they see how good that is. Paul says it differently in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's unbelievers. But then he says, what about us? How did we go from unbelievers to believers? He says, two verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same power that gave light to the whole universe brightened up our hearts so powerfully that we could see and accept Jesus. And that changed everything. And that inside transformation needs to come out. The question is, how is shining an encouraging reminder? Because when we hear the command to be different from the world, that can feel hard. It can actually feel much more intimidating than encouraging. But what Paul is really trying to do is remind you, God has given you a way to navigate all of life. God's given you a way to navigate all of life. Alistair Begg, who's a well-known pastor, he actually explains here that Paul is using a metaphor. Alistair Begg explains, what is in mind here is that stars were used as navigational aids. Think of the three wise men in the book of Matthew and how they found Jesus because of a star. People would walk outside and they would look up and by the means of the stars, they would determine their course. We are to be like that. In the darkness of the world in which you live, you will become navigational aids for a world that doesn't know which way to turn. Christians have learned, by God's grace, how the world works. And we get to help others see it too. We know who we are, where we're going, and what we're becoming. And we're sure, because verse 16 says we have the word of life. We hold on to it. We're dependent on it. It's God's navigational tools. 
by which we see God as our chief navigator. And we know we have everything we need to be equipped to not only guide ourselves away from darkness and to continue in the light, but we get to help others do that too. That others, we can lead others out of God's, out of darkness and into God's light. And so if God has invited us into the privilege of showing this world purpose, morality, security, and hope, that shouldn't feel like something to complain about. That should feel like a privilege. Anyone here know what's the most important star for navigation? You might think the sun, because then you can like see stuff. But I mean, like if it's night and like you have the stars and you know how to deal with them, which one's most important, Sam? That's correct, Sam. Very nice. It is the North Star. The technical nerdy word is Polaris. It's 430 light years away, and it's part of the Big Dipper. If you ask me to point it out, I couldn't. But people who know the stars can. And you know why it's so useful? The reason the North Star is so useful is because it remains nearly stationary while every other star appears to revolve around it in the night sky. The North Star doesn't change. That's why it's so helpful. And the reason you have everything you need in Christ is because he is our North Star. Jesus doesn't change. He's sovereign and his plans are always good. He has no need to change. His paths and commandments are always straight. And when he's called us, all roads lead to heaven. And therefore, again, as Alistair Begg says, be obedient without wishing you didn't have to be. Which is a really good line. Be obedient without wishing you didn't have to be. The reason we complain is because we don't want to obey God. The reason we complain is because we don't trust God. We want change. We want circumstances to change. We want people to change. And all of that is saying we want God to change. And that's a problem because that means we are forgetting God is God and we're not. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Complaining comes always from the same place, which is I don't agree with God and I don't trust God. I read a story this week about an English pastor in the 1700s and he was walking home and there was a storm. The weather started getting very bad and he got nervous and anxious. But as he walked, he came across a shepherd. And back then, most shepherds, because it helped with their sheep, they could predict the weather. It was helpful for their job. So because he was nervous, the pastor asked the shepherd what the weather forecast tomorrow would be. And the shepherd replied, it will be the kind of weather I'm pleased with. It's kind of a weird thing to say. It's going to be the weather I'm pleased with. And so the pastor was also surprised, and he asked the shepherd to explain. And the shepherd said this, because it will be the kind of weather that pleases God. And whatever pleases God always pleases me. Colossians 1.17 says, in Christ, all things hold together. Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Whatever, whatever weather God brings, 
He's going to give us what we need to weather it and to honor him as we get through it. And if God is that good and sure of a navigator, if God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, then we need to honor him without complaining about him because we have it so good. You can show this world that there's a better way to live than by randomness and a better way to be satisfied than in immorality. We have the privilege of leading people out of darkness and into light because we've seen the light. We have every reason to rejoice. And if you want to be that kind of bright and long-lasting light, if you want to be the kind of person who can trust God in all seasons, you will be surprised at how powerful and bright a light you will be able to be. And it simply starts with this. The more you trust God, the more you will shine. Not the more perfectly you model the gospel, not the more perfectly righteous you are. Just start with trusting God. The more you trust, the more you shine. So Paul's given us two reminders. If you want to stop complaining, number one, remember that you are a child of God. And number two, remember you get to be a light in this world. And Paul gives us a third reminder, and we won't go too long on it because when we begin again in Philippians in, uh, in uh, 2024 in January, we're going to get into this a little bit more. But the third reminder is this. We've been blessed by God's people. We've been blessed by God's people. And this begins in verse 16 when Paul says, in the day of Christ. This is actually a running theme. In Philippians, Paul mentions eschatology, which is the end times. He remembers a day when Christ is going to return. He remembers heaven is on its way. And Christ is going to make all things new. And when he makes everything in the world new, he's going to renew us as well. And when you mention the day of Christ, what normally comes after that is the reminder that when Christ returns, we want him to be proud of us. We want to present our lives before him and say, look how we honored you. And then Paul does a super weird thing, in my opinion, which is he actually doesn't tell them to be motivated to please Christ. He talks about them pleasing him, which is kind of a weird thing to say. He says in verse 16, I want to be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, which almost sounds like he's saying, don't be bad Christians or I wasted my time with you. It's just like, a really dramatic thing to say. If you could imagine me saying that to you, imagine if I said to you, I hope you all grow up to be good Christians or else I should never have come here. Like, that'd be a, wow, a rough thing to say. That is not good. And it's not good for a lot of reasons. Not just because it sounds rude, but it also sounds like the exact thing we just talked about, trusting God's plan. God sent you there. The results are in his hands. Why would you say that? And, of course, that's because Paul's not trying to say that. But he is trying to tell them that his investment in them, not because he needs an ego boost, because they need a reminder, his investment in them is worth remembering. Look at how he continues in the next two verses. In verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. 
That might sound a little confusing, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Paul does trust God brought him to Philippi, and he trusts that's God's plan, even if the Philippians don't grow. That's okay. He says, I am happy to have been poured out as a sacrifice. I'm happy to be used for God's glory, regardless of the results. Why? Because Paul's thankful for ministry. Paul wanted ministry. Even if it came with suffering, he is exposing his heart of gratitude. And he wants the Philippians to think the same way. Paul's grateful that he got ministry, but he's even more grateful that he was a minister to these people because he loves them. And because God sent him there, he's so thankful that God loves the Philippians. And he loved them enough, not just to save them, he says, to give them faith, a ministry of faith, but to further invest in them through Paul. God blessed the Philippians through Paul. And that's exactly the point that Paul is trying to make. Why is he exposing his heart of gratefulness in being able to minister to them? Because he's saying this, you need to be thankful for the people God has provided for you. God has provided you with people, both to bless you and to be an example to you. And you know what? That helps us stop complaining. I think there's a super obvious reason for that. Think about what we complain about. What is probably the number one thing we complain about? Because it's usually not circumstances. It's usually people. We complain about people. We don't like the people that are around us. We don't like the people God has brought into our life. They're annoying. They don't understand us. And they're rude and condescending. And so often they're so annoying and so rude and so condescending that we can't just keep frustration in our hearts. We tell other people. And what Paul is saying in using an example of his own ministry to them is to give them a reminder. This kind of complaining is devastating. Devastating for unity. And what was Paul just talking about? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, unity is so important. It's so important. Which is my, you need to remember this. We need a unified front in the gospel. And that's not as hard as you think if you know God provided exactly who you need to be around you. You might be frustrated with your parents. God gave you your parents. God gave you your parents. You might be frustrated with your brothers and sisters. God gave you your brothers and sisters. And you know what? They're exactly who you need around you. God is using them to grow you, to sanctify you, to humble you. And it is all a demonstration of his love for you. One thing my youth pastor told me when I was younger is that every time I am annoyed with someone and I know that God is calling me to love them, I should remember that there are a lot of people loving me, even though I'm annoying them. And I thought that was so helpful because I grew up and looked back at me and be like, wow, I was annoying. And the reality is that's all of us. Because that's what happens when you're a sinner. You rub people the wrong way. And you know what? 
God still provided people who are so loving and so humble, they love you regardless. And that's an example for you to follow. Yes, we do have people that are around us, and it is actually appropriate to point out flaws in them for the purpose, for the purpose of building them up in love. However, complaining about them is complaining about God, and that stops you from being blessed by what God wants to do through them, which is to give you an example, an example to follow, and an example of Christ himself. The more you recognize how many people God has brought into your life to bless you, it'll be easy for you to bless others regardless of what they do, regardless of what they do. And I'll stop there because we're actually going to talk about that later in January when we get to the next section in Philippians 2, verse 19 to 30. But before we end, let me just say this. Paul's given us three reminders. Number one, that we are children of God. Number two, that we are lights in the world. And number three, that we've been blessed by God's people. Three reminders, and they're good reminders. But the reality is, if those reminders don't excite you, if those reminders don't don't make you motivated to share the gospel. And most importantly, if those reminders don't make you want to stop complaining, then you might not know Jesus. And you need to deal with that immediately. Because if it doesn't do anything for you, you may never have listened to Jesus before. I remember the first time I learned how to surf. And I was so excited, and I had hours and hours of a very long and very beautiful road trip with some very awesome people to think about how I was going to surf. And because I thought about it so much, when we arrived and we were given a four-hour surf lesson, I did not listen to a word the surf instructor said. Because I was so sure I'd spent enough time thinking about it on my own that I did not need help. And four or five ten-foot waves later... And like a barrel of water down my throat and probably a concussion from getting hit in the face by that surfboard so many times, I realized something serious about myself, which is I didn't just not listen because I thought people were wrong. I listened because I had pride. And I realized that not when I didn't listen, but when I realized that I needed to listen, how much it hurt to admit that I was failing. It really hurt to admit that I was failing. But you know what? When I actually humbled myself and when I actually went to the instructor and asked for help and I talked to my buddies who did listen and they helped me, I learned how awesome it was to surf. Surfing was awesome. And I love it to this day. I think there's something similar in some of our struggles to follow Jesus, which is that the reason following Jesus might not feel awesome and the reason following Jesus might seem like removing us from good things instead of leading us into good things is because we are actually part of this crooked and perverse generation. And God is telling you in these reminders, you don't need to be. These reminders are for you. By the free grace of Christ, you can become a child of God. You can have the privilege of shining in this world. And you can receive God's love in the way that he pours his grace out to you through other people. 
That can all be for you. And it's a very simple process. It's listen to Jesus. Ignore the frustrations of the people telling you about Jesus. Ignore the frustrations that you have with God or you have with this world or you have with the lot that God has placed you in this life because in Christ, he's showing you something so much greater, which is that you get to be with God forever, forever. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. So listen, Come to Jesus, see his grace, accept the gospel, follow his paths, and you'll be surprised to find God is a God who transforms all, not some, all of our complaining into rejoicing. So let's pray. Father, I admit even in preaching this sermon it just feels so easy to be a hypocrite because with these words in my heart these last couple of weeks, I have still found the dumbest things to complain about. Complaining goes so deep in our souls. And Father, we need it to expose everything that's wrong with us, all of the sin that is so deep down inside of us. And yet, Father, even as your spirit by your word, exposes that sin to us. Show us Christ. We beg you, show us Christ. Because when we see Christ, we see freedom from sin, both ultimately in justification, in everything Christ has done for us in his life and death and resurrection, but also personally in our sanctification and how you are weaning us off of sin And you have got us on a steady diet of righteousness. And Father, you're not just transforming us to do the right thing, but to think the right things and to enjoy the right things and to desire the right things and to be hopeful about the right things. Father, for any of us in this room who do not know Christ, please expose our hearts to us that maybe these reminders aren't good to us because we don't know you and we don't want to know you, but you are more powerful than our sin and stubbornness. You can change our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that. And in all of these things, Father, let us not just stop complaining, but keep reminding us of reasons to start rejoicing. We have so many more things to be thankful for than we realize. Please help us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.